The English settlement of Jamestown starts with three ships, Susan Constant, Godspeed, and Discovery, as they set sail and arrive in 1607 along what was then called the Powhatan River. The stories of the ships and the people who sailed the Atlantic on the first expedition of the Virginia Company are filled with courage, but conflict, bravery, and disappointment, friendship, but betrayal, excitement, and despair. Their pursuit to find a new home was filled with contradictions, but yet, Jamestown became the first established English settlement in what would become the United States of America. On the U.S. Mint's Virginia State Quarter, you will find featured the three ships. And I'm Anita Thomas, host of Quarter Miles Travel, and here on this podcast, I will tell their stories. It's Quarter Miles Travel, where the adventure begins when you reach into your pocket. There's a story behind every quarter design, a story that can take you on an adventure of your own, from one-of-a-kind landmarks to hometown heroes. Start your journey with Anita, one quarter mile at a time. Life is meant to be lived. I see it all as it's meant to be seen. I am free. Oh, I am free. Every step I Every place I go, I am me wholeheartedly. That's what you see, that's what you see. On December 20th, 1606, three ships set sail on the first expedition of the Virginia Company the Susan Constant, Godspeed, and a small ship discovery leave England under the command of Captain Christopher Newport. Now he's not new to this. He's an experienced privateer who had sailed to the West Indies many times since the 1590s. But in 1605, Newport made an exploratory voyage along the North American coast to explore the area because at this time, the size of the North American continent was not yet known. What he was in search of was a northern route to the South Sea, or what we call the Pacific Sea. In 1606, King James of England charters the Virginia Company of London to oversee this exploration and the colony. This new company is created with the hopes of finding passage to the South Sea by way of waterways and tributary rivers, but also to establish a colony in Virginia. The three ships, set sail with an elite group of passengers, gentlemen as they were called. The gentlemen were not members of nobility, but they are distinguished from men who practice a trade or profession. Also on board was a sealed set of documents, not to be opened until they reached Virginia. These papers would designate leadership in the new colony. Now what lies ahead is a long journey, one which would take them several months to complete. But how did the three ships travel? Did one lead the way or did they sail together? To answer my questions throughout the podcast, I reach out to Kaya Mosley, interpretive supervisor of the three recreated ships at the Jamestown Settlement and American Revolution Museum at Yorktown. She tells us how they made it across to Virginia first three uh, ships that brought the English colonists to Jamestown, and they did come together as a little fleet of three. 
Um, and as far as we know, they were together for the, the whole trip. They don't mention ever being separated or losing sight of each other or anything like that. So it was a four and a half month journey from start to finish. And they all made it together as a little fleet on the way across. Smooth selling, it was not. The trip starts with a delay. Kaya shares what happened. Uh, we think they left from the London area. So they first come down, um, they'll, they'll come down and into the English Channel. So they've begun their voyage, but then they sit in the English Channel for four or five weeks, according to some of the documents, because they had what they said were contrary winds. So winds that are blowing against the ship and they can't, they need to wait for the winds to change direction for them to be able to get out. So I, I tell people, if you've ever sat on the tarmac <laughs> on an airplane for a couple hours, you can at least be happy that your airplane was sitting still and you weren't stuck there for six weeks. Of the over 100 passengers on board, there is a gentleman by the name of John Smith, who becomes very well known for his role in establishing the first permanent English colony at Jamestown, Virginia. Although on the journey over, Smith challenges Admiral and Captain Newport's command and is imprisoned. Both men were experienced explorers. They were well versed in navigation. However, Newport's experience made him the choice for this voyage. Kaya shares why. Yeah, one of the things that I think is so interesting about this particular voyage is that the, the captain that they had for Susan Constant, which was the biggest ship, and he was also the admiral of the fleet, his name was Christopher Newport. And by this point, he had done 10 or 11 transatlantic voyages. So he's very experienced. So we kind of often have this idea that people are just sort of blindly setting off into the unknown, never knowing where they're going to land. But Christopher Newport knew this route that they took. He knew how to cross the ocean because he'd done it so many times. He was a great guy to put in charge of the voyage. Newport has over 100 passengers sailing with him among the three ships. Now, this is long before passenger ships and sailing across the Atlantic as we know it. And while there are no detailed records to describe the exact conditions, because these ships were cargo ships, that lets us know that they would have had to provide their own area to claim their own spot and settle into the conditions of sometimes being hot, sometimes being cold, sometimes being wet or humid as they sailed. Kaya tells us about the information that they do have on the number of passengers and the conditions on board. We know there were 71 people total on board Susan Constant. There were 52 on Godspeed and there were 21 on, 21 on Discovery. That counts the crew as well as the colonists. So we don't have a breakdown of those numbers from the time period, but our curators have done an estimated breakdown. So for Susan Constant, we think that's about 54 passengers versus around 17 crew members. Mm. But keeping in mind, none of these ships are meant to carry passengers. That's not really a big thing. And so they're cargo vessels. Typically, you would just see the crew on board and the lower decks would be filled with cargo. So on this voyage, there really are not um, special accommodations for colonists. They're kind of bringing their own with them and placing them on the cargo decks where they can find a spot. Okay, but what was the day-to-day -day life like on board? We have two accounts of the voyage. Um, uh, the, 
in the form of uh, one was a letter that was written by a man named George Percy back to someone in England. And then the other is an account by uh, John Smith, who most people are familiar with. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, they say pretty much nothing <laughs> about what life was like below decks. Most of the time they talk about, so they talk about the very beginning of uh, being stuck in the English Channel, some storms that they had there. And they talk about what they did in their different island stops on the way over. But we can kind of extrapolate because of other voyages from the same time period that it would have been dark down below because almost everything is closed up to keep the water out. It's a little bit of grating at the t uh, above the colonist's head to let in some light and air. Uh, there were 54 people in a place that wasn't meant to hold people. <laughs> so yeah. it's going to be crowded. It's going to be stuffy, not very luxurious at all. Um, all of the food that they're eating while they're on board the ship will be preserved. So it's salted or pickled or dried and made into a lot of soups and stews or, you know, like big bowls of seasoned rice or something like that. But it doesn't seem like anything very unusual happened on board. So out of those all three ships that we talked about and all of those people, only one man died on the way over, which is pretty astounding <laughs> for the conditions that they were living in. Considering the conditions they were selling under, the length of time and number of months of their journey, it's pretty amazing more people did not become ill and die. I asked Kaya what happened to the one person who did not survive the journey. That's one of the things they write about. They were stopped in one of the Caribbean islands, the island of Mona, and they had sent a party ashore to get fresh water because they mentioned that just before they arrived at that island, their water smelled so vile that no one could stand to drink it. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> so they sent a bunch of people ashore to get fresh water and a number of the colonists went ashore to explore as well. And they said that because of the heat of the area, all of the, the shore party was overcome by that heat. And because of that, they could not revive Edward Brooks. He's the man that died. And this is the quote. The fat melted within him. What? I know. What does that even mean? <laughs> We're not 100% sure, but we think it had something to do with the heat. You know, maybe heat exhaustion or heat stroke or something like that because everybody else had been overcome by that heat and their water was undrinkable before they landed. With the many, many stops along the way, Admiral Newport was skillfully guiding the ships toward Virginia. His experience and knowledge of the area sure did help them not only navigate the waters, but also taking them through the routing that would also keep his passengers alive. It was a long, long, long voyage as Kaya shares. Well, they left just before Christmas in 1606, so January, uh, excuse me, December 20th. And then they, they came down the Thames River, it took them about a week, and then they spent that time in the English Channel. So by the time they reached their first stop, which was the Canaries, it was late February or mid-February, I think it was. Yeah, so the, the preferred route across the Atlantic at this period was to come down and kind of jump in the trade winds. So it takes you in this big clockwise circle. And when you look at it, if you don't know why they did it, it looks like they went ridiculously out of their way. Like why in the world would they put all those extra miles on their voyage? But um, that's the preferred route of the time because once you jump into those trade winds, you have very consistent winds and currents that uh, take you to where you want to go. There's also a bunch of places to stop. So they stop in the Canaries and they stop six different times in different Caribbean islands. And when they go ashore, they write about uh, collecting fresh food and water. So they get water, they get, uh, what do they talk about? Sweet potatoes and plantains and pineapples. 
Um, so you can imagine like if you just spent six or seven weeks eating salted pork and dried peas and beans, you know, a ship's biscuit for that whole time, how amazing is that pineapple going to taste when you first put that to your lips? Uh, some grapefruit down in the Caribbean. I'm sure they love that. For sure. <laughs> Although Newport was familiar with the West Indies and the islands along the way, there was always the possibility of encountering people who lived on the islands and called them home. There were stops in the Canary Islands, Cape Verde, and other islands to replenish supplies. A stop in Puerto Rico, which was already occupied by the Spanish, who colonized the land and the Tiano people, would have brought encounters with local residents. What were those encounters like for the passengers? There, were, there was one island that they stopped at that was inhabited by indigenous people. And it doesn't seem like they went ashore there right away because they do talk about people coming out in canoes and trading food with them. But it seems like the other island, there was one other island where I, I believe they did set up like a perimeter, a guard perimeter, because they were concerned about um, having interactions with some of the folks. But some of those islands were uninhabited as well. It's like, uh, like three or four days at each island stop. So it does add up. On May 14th, 1607, Newport and the passengers aboard the three ships arrive at the Paratan River, which was renamed the James River. The area afforded a harbor deep enough for the ships to safely dock and secluded enough for any Spanish ships sailing by after a long passage from England. What was their experience sailing along the coastline in search of the best spot to stop? Kaya tells us about their time on board reaching landing and how the strategy of finding the best spot was chosen. Shortly before they arrived or before they sighted the mouth of the Chesapeake Bay, they went through a pretty severe storm. So they got bounced around and they kind of lost their bearings a little bit. But once they sighted the mouth of the Chesapeake Bay, they all came in there and then they brought another little boat with them. It's called a shallop and it was taken apart in, in pieces and stored below. So one of the first things they do when they get into the bay is to take that shallop in its pieces, go ashore, put it back together. So now they have a long boat that you can use a small sail on if the weather is cooperating. And if not, you can row it. So they've got this very shallow draft, doesn't need a whole lot of water to go in, boat that you can row around and explore. And so what they likely did was send that boat and their smallest ship, which is Discovery, uh, kind of first to explore things, make sure the water's deep enough for the bigger ships to go. So you don't want to travel 6,000 miles just to run aground and be stuck there. Well, they knew they wanted to go to the Chesapeake Bay in that area. And then they, the company sent them with a list of instructions. The document that we still have is called Instructions by Way of Advice. And they were given a list of criteria to look for in deciding where to actually plant their colony. Uh, so they looked around for a couple of weeks. They explored the different rivers and they were looking for a place that was easy to defend, that was far enough up the, uh, up the bay or up a river that they wouldn't be subjected to, um, they wouldn't be very visible to any Spanish ships that may go by because they're still, they're really worried about uh, conflict with the Spanish at this point. Mm -hmm. They want to find a place that has good water they're told not to offend the naturals, meaning um, don't just waltz in there and boot people off their land because they're hoping to buy food from them. So they don't want to make people angry right away because they want to be able to trade and buy food. And then one of the biggest things um, that I think we don't think about today as modern day people is that they needed 
a place with deep water to get their ships. Because for the foreseeable future, all of their supplies are coming by ship. And so they actually pass up a place that was a little bit further down from where they, they wound up landing that was maybe a little bit better uh, ground, and but it didn't have a port. They couldn't get their ships in. And so when they chose Jamestown Island, where they finally landed, they mentioned that there was um, six fathoms of water, which is 36 feet, so close to the shore, they could tie their ships up to the trees. That's really helpful for loading and unloading supplies and things like that. Absolutely. I think today we think about, you know, trucking things in or flying things in, so we don't necessarily think of how important a criteria that was for them. Okay, it's after landing. And Kaya mentions that they opened the papers they were given when leaving London and instructed not to open until landing. John Smith is listed to be part of a 13-man council to lead the building of the settlement. The colonists come prepared to start establishing a colony. There are carpenters on board, a blacksmith, a mason, a tailor, barber, and even two surgeons. The territory where they settle? is the home of the Powhatan Indians, who are a confederation of tribes who live on what is in present day, Richmond, Virginia to coastal North Carolina, with Jamestown squarely located in their territory. Kaya describes what the Powhatans and the colonists experienced as they arrived and started to make this spot their settlement. So this would not have been the Powhatan's first encounter with Europeans because there had been a Spanish Jesuit mission uh, over on the York River. So just across the peninsula, maybe 20 or 30 years prior to this. Um, but there is a, there's one, there are two accounts of this voyage, like I said, Percy and Smith. And they do write about um, hearing people, like when they're going ashore, they hear cries in the woods. And they do write about sending people ashore to explore. And in one area, um, they, uh, some of the local Powhatans fire arrows at them and wound some of the English. They kind of go running back to the ships to get on the ships. And at that point, they fire the guns that they have aboard, just kind of into the trees to make a big noise. Um, but yeah, almost as soon as they get here, they're having interactions with the Powhatan people. Captain Newport and a small group of men explore the area of the James River where they meet Powhatan Indians and a tribal leader. The meeting between the Powhatan and the colonists doesn't start off as friendly as I'm sure they had hoped. Within less than two weeks, hostilities between the colonists and the Indians break out, with close to 200 Indians killed and several colonists. Although there are conflicts between the colonists and native people, the Powhatan offered supplies and food to the colonists during their dire times. On June 22nd, Captain Newport takes the Susan Constant and Godspeed back to London, filled with what they believe to be gold. But when they arrive, they find that it is fool's gold, a mineral which looks a lot like gold, but it isn't. When he leaves for England, he leaves behind the majority of the colonists and the discovery ship for them to use as needed. The colonists from the start were in dire need of supplies, and shortly after Newport leaves, most of the colonists perished, leaving only a small group of about 30 plus. Newport leads several missions to bring food and more passengers to Jamestown. These missions become known as the first and second supply missions between 1607 and 1611, 
to help establish and maintain the Virginia settlement. When he returns, he comes with more men, an additional 120, who are now more mouths to feed. And as Newport experiences the great need for supplies, he quickly sets sail for London again, this time taking a Powhatan Indian with him. He is not selling the noteworthy Susan Constant and the Godspeed, which brought the maiden voyage of sellers to the new land. Kaya shares what we know about the Susan Constant and Godspeed. Uh, two of the ships went back. Susan Constant and Godspeed returned to England and they returned to their original owners. And after, we know they made it back safely, but after that, we don't really see much more about them in any of the historical records. There are supply ships that come, but they are typically different ships each time. There are multiple voyages for supplies for the colonists and also to take goods traded and gained near the colony back to England. With the frequent travel, planning for safe travel and avoiding storms would require expert navigational skills, but also mother nature can step in. Here Kaya shares the story of one mission. So in 1609, there was a fleet of nine ships that left England for Virginia. And one of those ships was called the Sea Venture. It was the biggest one in the fleet. It had a very experienced admiral aboard. It had the new governor aboard. And it also had our friend Christopher Newport, who was captaining that vessel. So he made multiple trips back and forth. And this fleet set out for Jamestown in May and or in June. And then toward about five or six weeks in, they ran into a very severe hurricane. And we have two accounts of what that hurricane was like for the people on the sea venture. And it was something else. They talk about the ship um, spitting out her oakum, which is the stuff that is caulked into the seams to keep water from coming in, right? So she was spitting that out. There were leaks everywhere. They looked down in the hold and they can see water that's like waist deep coming in. They have everybody on the ship, including the governor, taking turns pumping the bilges 24 hours a day for four straight days and nights. Um, they talk about uh, ship's biscuit, which is like the bread that they eat, shooting out of the bilge pumps while they're pumping. So they think, oh, maybe the leaks are in the bread room and they go down there and they can't find them. And they eventually run out of the items that you would normally use to caulk and stuff into the seams. So they start taking pieces of salted meat and jamming it into the seams between the planks to try to stop the water from coming in. None of it worked. <laughs> so they're still uh, leaking incredibly. And at, at, after about four days, they finally, they're just exhausted and they just kind of give up and they break open the alcohol that they have on board to kind of toast each other, assuming that they're all gonna die and this is their last toast and they're gonna meet you know, again in heaven. And in the middle of the night and early morning, the Admiral of the fleet spies land and they're in the middle of the ocean. Where in the world could they be? Well, it turns out that they're right by Bermuda and they managed to run the ship aground in between two coral reefs so that it doesn't sink right away. They salvage what they can from the ship. They get everybody off safely and they live on Bermuda for the next nine or 10 months. And while they're there, they build two new ships. So about 10 months after the rest of the fleet had gotten to Jamestown, broken and battered and bruised, and assuming these guys were lost at sea, here they come sailing up the river, like, hey guys, how's it going? <laughs> and to me, I just think that is the most amazing story. 
I honestly think, you know, sometimes we we watch movies about historical things and, and they, they put stuff in there that is really unrealistic to make it exciting. Uh-huh. You would not have to add anything to this story if you wanted to make a movie out of it. It is just incredible. That is an incredible story. And talk about luck. Oh, my gosh. Well, here's the real kicker is that, you, I mean, if you were shipwrecked on Bermuda as an English person in 1609, you would probably think that was the worst thing that could possibly happen to you. But what was going on in Jamestown while they were there on Bermuda, it was the starving winter that we talk about, where the colonists were under siege in the fort and they lost such, um, such a large amount of their population. So imagine thinking this is the worst thing that could ever have happened to you and then coming into Jamestown just after that starving time and seeing what you missed. Talk about perspectives. <laughs> It's pretty incredible. Had they given, you know, had they given up and cracked that wine open, you know, a day earlier, yes, we would exactly. never have known any of that story. And was that the Admiral's last voyage or did he go back again? Uh, so the Admiral for that voyage was a man named George Summers, Sir George Summers. And he, um, after they got to Jamestown, they decided to send uh, some ships out to try to get more food. And he volunteered to go back to Bermuda so he took one of the ships they had built in Bermuda to go back there. But unfortunately, when he was in Bermuda, he died. Uh, they sent a couple ships out and they, they were able to get some fish. I don't know that the, the, the one that went to Bermuda did not go back to Jamestown because um, when George Summers died, his son or nephew or somebody was there as well. And he was like, oh, well, I'm, I'm Lord Summers now, so I'm going to go back to England and claim my inheritance. Talk about a fantastic story. That mission was certainly meant to be completed. You can only imagine the joy of the colonists as they see the supply arrive on the sea voyage. The second supply mission that arrived in October of 1608 with Newport commanding the Mary Margaret, on board there were much needed supplies and more colonists. But this time, among them are two women who are recorded as being the first women to come to the Virginia colony. They're the wife of Thomas Forrest and her maid, Anna Burris. Their stories are bravery, courage, strength, and tenacity. And those stories demand a full episode of their own. I share their stories in part two of the U.S. Mint Virginia State Quarter. The three ships, Susan Constant, Godspeed, and Discovery, are instrumental in starting what is now the United States of America. The first established settlement of English colonists. They endured conflicts both within their colony and with the original people who lived on the land. They made it through the starving times to develop Jamestown. If you're thinking it would be really exciting to have a chance to see one of the ships in person, well, the actual ships are long gone, but they have been recreated and outfitted for us to visit and get a feel of what they would have felt or thought as they stepped onto the ships, leaving everything that they know, leaving family, leaving home, and everything familiar to sail across the sea to a new land filled with mystery but also hope and promise. You can tour the recreated ships at the Jamestown Settlement and American Revolution Museum in Yorktown. You'll meet Kaya. Kaya shares what your experience will include. Uh, so the ships that we have at Jamestown are all recreations, but they are the same size as the original vessels that they represent. So when you step aboard, you'll be seeing you know, the same space and size that the early colonists had. 
Um, there's very little information about the ships themselves except their size and their names and their captains. And so what researchers did in order to be able to recreate the ships was look at other ships from the same time period. There are some um, fragments of English shipbuilding treatises that are still around that they looked at. And there are there's actually a lot of maritime archeology span from sunken ships from the same time period. All that information um, was taken by professional researchers and put together to kind of come up with an idea of what the ship should look like. And then that was given to modern day naval architects who designed ships for the builders to build. That's really cool. I had a chance to go on board those and it's, it really does give you a chance to really feel what it would uh, get an idea. And I don't yeah. know, really truly completely put ourselves in, you know, in their, their positions, but yeah, it yeah. Was good to be able to walk on board and have a sense of what it would be like getting on board the ship because the thing i think about you know when we look back on history like that too is that you sit and you plan it's just like us nowadays you know we sit and we plan vacations we sit and we plan getaways and things like that maybe it's a, a fun getaway that we're doing or maybe one that's an emergency that we've got to go do but then you're actually doing it and for them you know they plan and they planned and now they're actually getting on board the ship and it's like no turning back you're that's right you're now leaving home and everything that you know. You are committed. <laughs> you are committed. You know, and I just I just had that sense of thinking that that you know you step on board, then you go down a little bit down to you know to the area, the cargo area, find your spot. You're really going now. It's, this is a planning. This is real mm -hmm. life. Touch the sides of the ship. You know, you can find your spot. You know, it's just amazing to me to think of the human spirit of people going out and, and, and going into the unknown like that. Yeah. And, you know, of course, like you said, we'll never really know exactly what they felt, but that's what we hope to give people the chance to, to learn. Like when they come aboard the ships, we want them to climb into a bunk and pull the curtain shut and see what it's like. We want them to lay on a passenger's mattress. We want them to try the steering and imagine what it would be like out in the middle of the ocean or help, the crew members set a sail or put it away because we want people to get their hands on things and feel as much as they can what these people would have been feeling as they came across. I mean, history is stories, right? It's yeah. stories of each individual person and what their life was like, you know, and not just, I mean, you know, when, we, when we're on the ships, we're talking a lot about the English, but you know, how did the English story impact the Powhatan people that were already here. You know, they have stories too, and they're interacting together. Mm. And it's so important to get all of those perspectives to really, truly uh, be able to sort of just piece out history and see what the story is. Yeah, to tell as much of the full story as you can. One of the biggest things that I like people to understand when they when they see the ships at Jamestown is, you know, again, we talked earlier about they're not just kind of going into this blind you know, they know what they're doing. They Sailing is a profession. The mariners on board would have served apprenticeships and spent years learning how to operate the vessel and take care of the vessel. And then you've got the officers above them who would have spent years learning how to navigate. Um, you know, navigation is, is an art form, but it's also transitioning into a science at this period. So they are able to figure out their latitude based on the position of the sun and, and other stars. Mm -hmm. um, they, they know what they're doing. They know where they're going. 
and they are able to do it multiple times so back and forth and get back to the same place that they want to be so these guys these guys are professionals so i work uh, on the ships in historic clothing talking to people about what the voyage was like and and uh, helping them try things out you know we do we help we teach people how to use some of the navigational tools or help, excuse me help them steer yeah all three of our ships are working vessels um the folks that work in historic clothing We'll take turns going, but we also have a professional captain and two mates that sail and do maintenance on the ships. And then we have a large core of volunteers and we couldn't do what we do without them. They come out every other weekend or so and they help us paint and scrape and sand and varnish. We've got some guys that know what, you know, electrical systems and plumbing and they help us with that kind of stuff as well. And then when we go sailing, those volunteers make up the majority of the crew members. We don't have a uh, certification from the Coast Guard that would allow us to take paying passengers. Yeah. Um, so typically it's our volunteer crew that we take. Yeah. But once we get where we're going, then we tie up and we have people come aboard. This podcast has been a step back in time to the foundering of our nation and the three ships that helped establish it. Quartermaster Travel would like to thank the following people. Kaya Mosley, my guest and interpretive supervisor with Jamestown Settlement and American Revolution Museum. Tracy Perkins, media relations with Jamestown Yorktown Foundation. For more information on planning a visit to Yorktown to experience the Living Museum, visit their website, historyisfun.org. You can experience two history museums that tell the story of America's beginnings. You'll learn about the real people and events of America's first permanent English colony and the American Revolution. Resources for this podcast are from the National Park Service and the Library of Congress. This episode of Quarter Miles Travel is brought to you by Allianz Travel Insurance, your one-stop for all of your travel insurance needs. Visit their website at allianztravelinsurance.com. Thanks for listening. Make sure to subscribe to Quarter Miles Travel to receive notification of upcoming episodes. Your support is greatly appreciated. Thank you.